I think many of you are familiar with uh, the movie Raiders of the Lost Ark, which, funny enough, has, has an arc in it, of course. Um, but I wanted to sort of make mention of a particular scene in the movie. Um, Indiana Jones is in the middle of a, a chase sequence uh, in Cairo, Egypt. He's trying to find Nazis who've captured his love interest. So he comes around the corner, and there's a swordsman there. He steps out to, to, to stop him from uh, finding uh, his love interest. The guy sort of twirls his sword around, and, and you know, if you like action movies, and you're sort of primed to think right now is going to be this big action scene, right, between Indiana Jones with his whip versus the swordsman with his sword. Uh, but that's not what happens, and a spoiler alert for a movie that came out many decades ago, but <laughs> if you want to close your ears, feel free to do that. Uh, that's not what happens. Uh, Indiana Jones pulls out a gun, shoots him, and then walks off. And that's the end of the scene. Um, it's a funny scene, surprising scene. For those people who, again, who like action movies, it's set up because, it's set up in a certain way to make you expect something. It makes you expect that in action scenes like that, where there's going to be a fight scene between two people, they're going to have sort of equivalent weapons. They're going to be fighting against each other, and there's going to be a battle to see who wins out in sort of this hand-to-hand -hand combat. Uh, but that's not what happens. Um, in this scene, one person has a weapon that totally outclasses anything else in that scene. Uh, have you heard that expression, right, don't bring a knife to a gunfight? The, the idea behind that expression is that when it comes to a, a battle, a war, or whatever it is, if there are certain weapons that are equivalent, then that's one thing you can expect. But if you're kind of talking about a battle where one person, when you have a gun, another person has a knife, you're talking about something that is totally separate. You're talking about someone who has a power that far outweighs what anyone else has. A weapon that just in its very existence, I mean, the transition even in our history from using swords and spears to, to rifles and guns was huge. The person who had that had great power. It was, it was, they existed in a totally different class, a totally different reality, far away from anything else that's around them. You know, I use this as a way to, to illustrate um, an important aspect of God. I'm missing a blank slide here. All right, that's fine. Uh, illustrate an important and really crucial aspect of God, that God is holy. Um, actually, just go back. I don't need that verse yet. There we go. Um, it illustrates a crucial and really important aspect of God. That God is holy. And to say that God is holy is to say that God is distinct from us. He's wholly separate from us. He infinitely outclasses us. When you think God is holy, it's, I had a professor say, say that holy is a way to say to speak to the godness of God, right? The godness of God. It's like he, God is, is, is 100% fully God in a way that is entirely different, far away, far separate from anything that we can imagine. And that should fill us with awe, respect, and not a little bit of fear. You know, another way to think about this is, is almost like God, it's is almost like, can, think of like an ant, next to a jet engine. How would you explain a jet engine to an ant? If you could enter into an ant world and talk in ant ease, right, you, could, you could even explain it. You couldn't describe that reality to the ant. Um, an ant and jet engine have nothing in common. The jet engine is, exists in such a far different reality than an, ant, than an ant, that the ant couldn't even bear to stand in the presence of a jet engine that's fired up. It would be incinerated in a second. It's far away, far different. From, from, uh, from that jet engine. And, and so the thing God is holy, that he's the holy God, it's a reminder of this fact that 
that God is fully God. It's the, God, the pure awesomeness. The pure awesomeness of the godness of God. It's why, you know, the title of the sermon I've, I've used this morning is, This Holy God, Behold and Beware. Behold and Beware. When we say God is holy, that he's separate from us, distinct from us, that's a call for us to behold him, to consider who he is, to be in awe and respect of this fact that this is God and you're not God. Behold him, but also beware. That means there's a sense in which God is dangerous for us. We, we are right to fear him, to treat him in a way that doesn't treat him like he's like us. And that, in fact, there's consequences if we treat him lightly. Consequences like an ant standing in front of a jet engine. And if we're honest, this idea of God being a holy God and to treat him that way, if we're honest, it's not something we're naturally do. We have a tendency to take God and bring him down to size until a, a place that we, it's a little easier for us to handle. A little easier for us to deal with. I said this last, last Sunday. I don't find people, most people I meet, aren't against the concept of God. We talk about God, but we like to think of God as like a higher power. You, maybe you've heard that expression. Maybe you've used that expression. I believe in God. I believe in a higher power. But if you think about that, just the, the thinking of God as, as a higher power, it's, it's really a way of bringing God down into our categories. Because there's lots of powers in this world. There's military power, political power, social power. And we think of God as just a higher power. He's a couple steps above that. And to think of him as a higher power, the reason we, people will often think of him and refer to a higher power is the idea that we want that higher power to work on our behalf. I appeal to the higher power to enhance this part of my life, to tweak this part of his life, to extend this part of my life. I'm going to pray. I'm going to pay attention to God. I'm going to talk about God. I'll, I'll show up on Sunday, especially this time of year. I'll do those kind of things, right? So that the higher power will help me get better grades, make sure I, my marriage goes the way I want it, make sure that I get the family that I want, make sure I have the career that I want, make sure that I have hard things in my life, but they don't, aren't quite as hard as I want them to be or as uncomfortable as I want them to be. We want the higher power. We believe in the higher power. But we want that higher power to work for us, to fit in our categories and the things that we want. And, and the thing the Bible does that is uncomfortable and yet very direct is to say God is not just a higher power. We can't compare him to any power out there. He can't be controlled, manipulated, or even bartered with. God is God, the holy God. Behold him and beware. That's a lesson that we want to see this morning. We're going to see it in the story. And the Philistines and the Israelites will be learning this lesson. So before we get into this, just a quick recap. Uh, the last chapter that we looked at last Sunday, the Israelites go out to battle against the Philistines and they, they bring the ark out. And the ark, if you remember, is just a really simple wooden box covered with gold. Inside of that box are, are, wooden, are stone tablets on which are written the law of God. And all that the ark was meant to do was to remind the people of God's presence with them, that God is with them. They have a special relationship with God. It also is to tell them that God is not their prop or tool. In fact, the ark was, people weren't supposed to ever see the ark. The ark was in the temple, behind a curtain, only certain times of year could certain people, priests, go and even look upon the ark, and they would do sacrifices. That's the way it was supposed to be. It's a reminder that God is their God, 
And they're his people, but not the other way around, <laughs> right? It's not the sense of God is serving them. They serve God. Israel is a special relationship with God, but God is truly God. And reality is, like, they have to be careful how they're around him. They have to appreciate that he is 100% God and they are not. Them bringing the ark is them basically ignoring that, thinking that they can make God, as we talked about this last week, their genie, right? The genie in the lamp, he's going to do what they want. They bring the ark out thinking, like, we will win this battle because we got the ark there. That's not what happens. They lose, they lose badly. The Philistines totally defeat the Israelite army, so much so the army disbands. They all go home. They're done. The Philistines come back with this huge victory. They make a mistake too, though. They think, well, like, we got to go in too. We got power. We have power over God, and God is about to teach them a very important lesson. So uh, 1 Samuel 5, verses 1 to 2. When the Philistines captured the Ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the Ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. This is common practice. You win a battle over your enemy, you capture their gods, you bring them back as a trophy to celebrate the fact that we won. We won, our gods won. And that's what they're doing. They're bringing the Ark of the Covenant and they, they see it as Israel's God now serving them, bowing in obedience to them and to their God. You don't treat God like that. <laughs> They're about to learn a very painful lesson. He's a holy God. Behold and beware. Verse 3. When the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. And you can imagine the shock on the people's face. This, for them, in the pagan sort of landscape, make an idol, it really does represent their God. Like he's there. And here he is. Face down, basically groveling on the ground before the Ark of the Covenant, before Israel's God. They think it's got to be a fluke. <laughs> so they go over, they pick their God up off the ground, you know, Dagon, are you doing okay? <laughs> Maybe you got drunk at the victory party, right? Pick him up, set him back on his place. I mean, just even the idea of like he needs help right, to get back off the ground. Pick him up, put him back in his place. All good. Verse 4, though, but when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is no accident. Dagon is back on the ground, this time head chopped off, hands chopped off. I mean, he's humiliated. He's been destroyed. This is no God, Right? They think that by having the ark, they have God, they've got power and control over God. God is making very clear, only he has power, only he has control, and he has power and control at all times, in all places. Only he is the holy God, worthy of honor and respect and not a little fear. Behold him and beware. And one of the things they're going to show here too, God's going to show here is that it's not just that Dagon is powerless in the face of this God. He's going to also show that the people, the Philistines, are powerless. They're outclassed. They think they have God under control. There is almost what ends up happening here is it's almost like what they, they might have expected they're going to take the ark on a victory tour to celebrate their, their power over God. That's, that's the opposite of what happens. God is going to 
show the fact that he has power. He has victory over the whole Philistines as he travels through these different cities. So we're told in verse 6, the results of what happens of them having the ark there. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod. And he he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and the surrounding territory. Some people, scholars think this might have been bubonic plague. So, you know, which is, you get different uh, sort of lesions, swelling in your lymph nodes, armpits, the groin. It's not good. It's painful, potentially deadly. Verse uh, 7. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, the ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon, our God. This ain't good. We got to do something. So, verse 8. They sent and gathered together all the wars of the Philistines and said, what shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around the Gath. So they brought the ark of the God of Israel there. But after they brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic. And he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. Well, you see, like, the ark is, is like a hot potato now, right? Any city it is in, people get sick and people are dying. Ashdod gets hit hard, so let's send it to Gath. Ark of the Covenant arrives there. Gath gets hit hard, even worse than Ashdod. So they're like, we got to get rid of this thing. They send it on to Ekron. And before he even gets there, the people of Ekron are like, whoa, like, what are you doing? <laughs> like, don't send it here. And they're right. As soon as the ark shows up there, people suffer. They even suffer worse than the previous two places. And based on in verse 5 um, of, uh, of chapter 6, we get the sense that there's other plagues happening too. It mentions mice ravaging their fields. So they're getting hit physically and also economically. And that's just like a direct diss on Dagon. Dagon was a god associated with architecture, agricultural, agriculture. Did I say that right? <laughs> uh, god, the Lord God, hits them right there. The god that they thought was in control over that, they're losing their crops, they're losing their harvest. This is not good. So, uh, Liz summarized this sort of next section, sort of as a reminder of what happens here. Um, it takes a few months, we're told in verse 1 of chapter 6, the ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines for seven months. I'm not sure why it took them that long, but, you know, people are hard-headed. <laughs> they, I think they thought maybe this will go away. It doesn't. And so they, decide, they realize we got to do something. Uh, the Philistines realize they can't keep this ark. Philistines realize they can't keep this ark, and they decide we need to send it back. Um, we, need, we need to do something. And so to send it back, they come up with the idea of creating these idols. Uh, they create gold replicas of the tumors and the mice that they've had for the last few months, which is a little strange <laughs> why you would make a, a, an idol of, I don't know, what, what would the idol of a tumor look like? I'm not sure. But they're pagans, and so the idea here is, like, we need to create something of what happened to us with the hope that God will, this, the Lord God will remove it, will take care of it, right? So they make these idols of the tumors and of the mice, and they do another thing, right? They take a cart, they put the Ark of the Covenant on the cart, they put the gold idols that they've made uh, on that cart. Uh, and, and this is a test, right? Uh, we're told here... They want to see in verse, uh, verse 9 of chapter 6, if we've been struck, we want to know um, if what has been done to us, is, uh, the great harm that's been done to us, if it's by his hand that struck us or if it happened by coincidence. The test to see if that's the case is how they set it up. They have these two cows. They've never pulled a cart. Uh, they've just had babies. 
And so now they're attached to this cart and they want to see what happens. The most natural thing to happen is two cows that have never pulled a cart, that have just had babies, they're going to want to go back to their calves to feed them. That's, that's what's going to happen. That's the most natural thing that happens. But that's not what happens at all. We're told, verse, um, verse 12, and the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh, along one highway lowing as they went. They turned neither to the right nor to the left. They go straight towards Israel. Don't turn one direction or the other. Right back to where they're supposed to. It's a silly test, uh, but God is accommodating them in a way to, I think, show this, is, this did not happen by accident. Um, this wasn't a fluke. This happened because I caused it to happen. So the Philistines are finally rid of, of the ark. The ark is on this cart. The cows are leading it back to Beth Shemesh, nearest town in Israel that they can get to. And the ark comes over the hill. People are out harvesting their fields. And you can imagine the shock, the surprise, the joy even. The ark of the covenant is back. The Lord is back. And so they immediately celebrate uh, the return of the ark. They offer a sacrifice. But there's more lessons to learn here, aren't there? Um, we see this with what happens with some of the people and how they treat the ark. Verse 19. And he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them. And the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Every Israelite knew that the ark of the covenant was sacred, was to be treated a certain way. The ark, again, represents the very presence of God. And one of the big ways you respect that very presence of God was how you treated the ark. We mentioned this before. Uh, they weren't, the ark was not meant to be normally looked at. You're not supposed to even look inside of it. All this was a way of them, sort of a physical way of us, of them showing their belief that God is unlike any other God. He's the one true God, the holy God, worthy of honor and respect and not a little bit of fear. We behold him and we beware. All that is clear in God's law. All the Israelites have been taught that. But some of them ignore that. It says they looked upon the ark, which implies they sort of looked inside of it, treated them, treated it with disrespect. Like, oh, this is our thing. And we see the consequence. Verse 20. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up away from us? I mean, here's, here's, if you're looking for one sort of verse to sum up this whole passage that we've been looking at this morning, it's this. Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? I mean, who indeed? There's no God like the God of the Bible. The Bible wants to give us this, this strong sense. Tell us actually directly, God is too much God for us. <laughs> He's too much God for us. He is the holy God. Distinct and separate from us. The godness of God is so much for us. Like, you better be careful how you think about him, how you talk about him. And just even, and I think, I think nature wants to tell us this if you pay attention. I mean, can you wrap your mind around the universe? Right? Like, sometimes we talk about like how many, like kajillions, I don't even know the word, right, that's just used for how many planets and stars are out there. Think about the, how hot the sun is. The, the, the blazing hotness and fury of the sun. Think about all those things. It's hard for us in our mind to even wrap our minds around the things that are in our universe, the things that are all around us. Where do those things come from? 
The Bible says it comes from God. If God can make things like that, we can barely wrap our minds around, barely wrap around mind the vastness of the universe, the heat of the sun. We've, we have an ocean around us that we have not yet, even all our generations of humanity, explored the depths of. It's right there. We can get to it. And even we can't wrap our minds around all that is going on. We're still discovering things at the very bottom of the ocean. If all those things are true and God is the one who created that, what does that say about how we treat this God? How we think about this God? It's a reminder of just how far away God is from us. How much greater, how much more, the word is often used, transcendent he is. This God is a holy God. Behold him and beware. Our story ends with uh, them realizing we don't want to keep this thing here either. <laughs> they send it to another place. And finally, this town, here of Jerim, I think they realize, like, we, we need to treat this like the Bible tells, like our law tells us to treat it. They set it up in a place. They appoint a priest, is the way God had, had led them to do so, to, to oversee this ark. So it's finally in a new place. And it stays there uh, for a while until King David comes around. See, the Lord God, I think it's clear, is not just some regular thing, some regular being for us to, to think about or relate to any way that we want to. We approach him with awe and respect, not just a little bit of fear. We realize and appreciate and must come to the realization that, in fact, if God is holy and he's all that he is, we can't approach him or relate to him in any just regular ongoing way. If God is so much God, that means we are so much human. There's a problem there, isn't there? It means that in many respects, yes, God has created us and created this universe, but we should not expect there's any way we can really relate to him. The distance is too much. The realities in which we exist is too far and too vast. It's why even in when there's places where we see people relating to God and we see just how hard that is, <laughs> There's an interesting story, I won't go all into it, of, of Moses being able to actually see God. And except it says he sees the back of God, right? God passing by his back. And the Bible says just the experience of that, God actually had to hide him in a rock and put his hand over him. And, and again, the Bible speaking in metaphors here, I don't think God had an actual, actual physical hand. But it's a way of just saying God had to restrain the fullness of who he is, of his full holiness for Moses. Moses walks away, his face is glowing. It's a way of just, again, reminding us of just how far away God is, how special and unique God is. The very godness of God and the very utterness of our humanity, our weaknesses and our sin. We shouldn't expect to have any type of relationship with a God like this. But here's a question. What if there is a way? What if there's a way not for God to come down to our level, but for us to come up to his level? What if God stays as he is, and there's a way for us to join him and be part of him. The Bible says there is a way, a way that God has made, that yes, God is holy. And I, let's, see, let's say this, we don't want him to stop being holy. Let's not make him just a higher power like us. That's not what we want. The fact that God is holy means that in him, in who he is, he is able to be all of what holiness of God means. The purity of who he is means that there is pure. Because for saying God is holy, that means all the things that we describe of God are holy as well. They're set apart. They're pure in their being. That means there's pure love and pure joy and pure peace and pure goodness and pure righteousness. That means there is a place in this universe and a life that can be lived 
in God, with God, where purity of heart and joy and life and love exists and will never be corrupted and will never change. God being a holy God means all that is there and will never change and it holds all things together. It's within who God is. It's a world that seems far away from us. Only a holy God can have a world be like this and give us a life like that and that's what he does. God, the holy God, invites us to join him in who he is in the world that exists in him and with him. To not have him sort of come down to our level and be human like us. In fact, what Jesus has done, what God has done in and through Jesus is come into our world to take us then out of that world and to join him where he is. God has provided Jesus so that we can join him and know him in his holiness. Jesus does this by removing the things that, bear, that block us from him. So our sin, our weaknesses, all these things that cause us to treat God as like a nothing. What Jesus does is take us and transform us so that we can approach God as a presence and be in intimate relationship with him. It's because we can now be holy like he's holy. We can be pure like he's pure. We can know pure love and joy like he does. The holy God invites us to be his holy people. And he came to us in Jesus to find us where we're at but not stay there. <laughs> to bring us to where he is now. Here's the result of that, of all that God has done through Jesus. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, for the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. The imagery here is here are these holy places closed off to us. It's where God is. He's so far away from us, so distant from us, so purely God. And God has provided a way for Jesus to say the curtain is open. The way is straight. Follow me and let me lead you to where God is. And to be led to where God is, we can't stay where we're at. We're changed. We're transformed. We're made like him. A holy people is what the Bible says, like the holy God. Only God can make that happen. God remains the holy God. We continue to need to behold and beware him. Consider who he is. To leave here today honoring and respecting that God is not like us. But praise God, he's not like us. He is holy and distinct and separate, which means we are invited to join him in that in a way that changes us and in a way that that that. That, well, that transforms us and brings us into the light of his presence where there is goodness and joy forevermore. In Christ, we can draw near. In Christ, we are, like it says there in verse 22, we are washed clean from an evil conscience. We're able to have our bodies washed with pure water. The sense is that there is a life and world full, full of pure joy and light and goodness. And staying where we're at, we will never find it. We join God where he's at. And then the, where, where holiness used to incinerate us and make us sort of cower in fear and wonder, there is no way we can stay here. Holiness instead becomes the place where we have a home. It becomes the place where we are familiar with who we are, where we become who God has made us to be. God has made you to be able to know his joy and light and goodness, and he's made it possible in Jesus. The invitation is to draw near. To consider the might of this God, but to draw near in Jesus. To draw near and to live there 
and to enjoy the light and radiance that only he can provide. Let's pray that we would have that kind of vision, that we would have that kind of sense, that we would see that kind of path, a path that is only possible through what God has done for us in Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this time, Lord, and for the chance, Lord, to, um, Lord, again, come before you and consider just who you are, the holy God. Lord, we're, we're taught a lesson here, Lord. This is something not to be considered tritely. In many ways, you are dangerous. Um, and danger, Lord, for, for us uh, could fill us with a fear that would kill us. Um, but, Lord, because of Christ, Lord, in many ways, we can say you're dangerously good. Good and just and pure because you are holy. Nothing can corrupt you. Nothing can stain you. And so, Lord God, cleanse us from all corruption, all stains. Invite us to live with you in your presence. Fill us with your goodness and your light and your joy. Lord, make us more and more your holy people. Lord, help us to see um, the possibility, the opportunity, Lord, the way by which, Lord, we <coughs> Lord, might live in such relationship with you that we um, well, we're blessed forevermore. Lord, I pray for those, Lord, who continue to live, Lord, apart from you, who don't know you. Lord, may, we, may that start for first appreciating just who you are and, again, seeing what you've provided for us in Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for creating this space in yourself for us to not just live in the presence of God, but actually um, well, be like him and to be like him in you. Thank you for this time, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.